Hey gang, Kelvin here. A uh, couple of quick updates, a couple of quick things. Uh, first and foremost, thank you for, again, making it this far into our conversation on The Last of Us Part 1 and 2. Uh, as you can tell, as I hope you can tell, Chris is a huge fan of these games. Um, I have, too, now become a, a fan of this game, and it's been great to discuss this with him and to elaborate on so many parts of what we loved about both of the games and... Believe me, as much as I would love to trim this down and shorten it, um, I really want to honor Chris and I want to honor his love and his passion for this game because he's a very good friend of mine. And I think he has a lot of interesting things to say, and I hope you do too. Um, so with that said, there is going to be one more episode. Uh, there will be a fifth episode coming out next week. Um, but I just wanted to give you a heads up that there will be one more because the last episode I talked about, there may be four, there may be five parts. At this point, it's definitely going to be five. Um, if you'd like to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, both are The You Show Show. Um, you can also reach out an email if you ever have any questions or comments about the show or if you have any interest in doing so. Uh, that is show at gmail.com. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's get back into The Last of Us Part 2 with Christopher Livingood. Thanks, everybody. Again, I could imagine, I, I know there was a lot of people upset about him dying, but I think that it served... A purpose and I think that it, it goes into it goes into the theme of like you know okay you wanted to play with Joel and Ellie in this game and go on more adventures and it's like so did Ellie absolutely uh, it, if, if it's like making the player vibe with what the character is experiencing a sense of loss Naughty Dog could not have crafted a more effective storytelling too, and it's, so it's it's well, and so it's it's really critical when I hear that criticism of you know well I don't give a shit about like Ellie's great or whatever, but I really hated playing Abby and I, I they didn't have to kill Joel or he should have gone out in a different way or he wouldn't have been dumb enough to do what he did, you know, and shack up with a bunch of strangers even for a second. It's like all you're doing is telling us that you're unhappy. Well, so is Ellie. And so am I. And so is anybody with a heart that played this game. And if you feel real hate in your heart for those circumstances, then the first half of this game is really super duper for you. But very likely the second half. Yeah. Is what you and it's just mean. like, I, it's I, again, it's, yeah, it's, it's frustrating, but it's like, here's a hug and that's what you need. We just need a hug because that's what grief is. And that's where this game, I think in terms of storytelling has, done an exemplary job of, of explaining what grief is because, again, we all react to things differently. You know, some people shell shock and they don't talk and they just turn into a ghost for a few days. Some people stay in bed. Some people gain weight. Some people lose weight. And it's these are all normal things that it's okay to go through. And it's a 17-year-old girl who's really, really good at killing people. And you have ways and means. <laughs> you decide to embark on a three-day, you know, killing tour de force in Seattle. And if you're going to write a game that's effectively what I think of as the best revenge story ever told, a game about hate. If the first game, as Neil Druckmann has said, if the first game is about love, this game is about hate and about the corrosive power of hate. And, you know, that's exactly, if you're going to launch it, you might as well start by absolutely devastating every player character that has ever loved the first game. Oh, and I remember, um, do you know Cliff Blazinski? He's big with Unreal. He worked on the yep. he worked on the Gears of War games. I'm a big fan of those games. He, I remember in an interview with him when Gears of War two came out. Um, he said it perfectly. He was like, you know, if you keep if you keep the game too much like the first one, people are going to complain that it's too much like the first one. But if you change it too much, people are going to complain it's not enough like the first one. And I think that when it comes to this media that is so big that is going to reach millions of people, you're not going to satisfy all of them. It's impossible. So you might as well tell the story that you want. And I am very, very, very glad that they did that here. They told the story that they wanted and they didn't compromise 
to go, well, we need to make sure that the t- fans of Joel aren't going to be angry by this. They were like, no, this is what the story is now. And, um, well, and, and I think the authenticity with which they approach this, and this is really what enrages the alt-right, was that they, they lost one of their core writers, creative directors, um, alongside Neil Druckmann, who was replaced with a very incredible, very talented female writer, and proceeded to really ramp the inclusion up to what I would consider a realistic level. Uh, you know, we live in a world that is actually mostly women. Uh, so having a few of the main characters that you are playing, in fact, all of them in this case, be women, uh, is not weird when you consider how few times you've played a woman in video games. <laughs> um, and having characters be gay, having characters be Jewish, having characters be trans none of this is bizarre this is all stuff that exists in the world if we go through a world-altering pandemic like uh right now those people will exist in the world and and i think deciding to write a story that deals with the world on its own terms and is just as brutal and loving and powerful and multi-hued and sometimes just boringly beautific um, that that is uh, really the best way to do it, and that has required a level of technology and craftsmanship that we I don't think have seen up until this game. With the rage of you know sort of the rage against this game after it came out, this was a very, very highly politicized game. Uh, there was a outpouring of just you know hate speech uh, stew uh, on the subreddit for the game The Last of Us Two on on Reddit. Uh, where you can still go to this day and just you wonder where all of these like basement dwelling <laughs> white power hicks, these like incredible homophobes who just have no exposure to other ways of thinking or uh, operating, where they all go to bitch about a game that came out, I think almost two years ago at this point. And, and they are all there. And it has become this focus point for the alt right to kind of shit on inclusivity and, um, and the ironic part is that it's not like they just made Joel come out as trans, as like a queer um, uh, Baha'i um, diaper play fetishist who, you know, gets weepy over 1950s rom-coms. You know? They included a thing that was already hinted to in the original game, that Ellie is gay and has interest in women. They included that some women are, especially when they're surviving in the post-apocalypse, might put on some muscle if they work out all the time. And by the way, you can check Abby's reps in the gym where she lives at the WLF Fortress and put up some weight. She is strong. Being married to a very strong wife, I can attest, those are absolutely its numbers. And a muscular woman is hot as hell. And the fact that there might be one whole trans person out of the hundreds of people whose paths you cross that that is an outlier somehow is insane. It is insane. And I, I, I think that, I think that everybody in their lives has these groups that were mentioning in their lives. It's just, some people don't know it because those people are afraid to tell them. And that's, that's the sad part is like, it's, you know, that was one thing. Um, I, I am a huge fan of Harvey Milk. I thought that, uh, he was, an amazing man and, and, and his the way he went out was super sad and he used to say that all the time you know to all to the whole gay community was like you know you got to go out and tell these people that you are gay because once you realize you know once you humanize the subject and realize that this isn't just people on tv these are your neighbors these are your children these are your friends and your family and the people that you care about then you realize the normalization of it all. And I, I, yeah. I, that is to me very important because it's just like, yeah, people, it's like when I grew up, you know, nobody was trans and it's like, no, 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 They, they were, you just didn't know, you know, you just never took the time. Yeah. It was just the nineties, the early two thousands. And they were really scared of reprisal from people, you know, like fucking you. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. um, so for that, I think we are both, I think at the end of the day, trying to say that we're very much on board and thankful that it, it happened in this game. Um, this is, um, the only way to do it is to do it. You know, I, like I see um, for, for Gay Pride Month, a lot of these companies, Xbox and Microsoft and PlayStation, you know, they change their logos and social medias to a flag. And then, of course, people make fun of it. But it's like, the only way to do it is to do it. 
Is it a little sloppy and a weird way to go about it? Yes, but at the end of the day, it's these major companies. You do have to go out of your way to sort of tell some of these stories, though, because yeah. if you look at the vast you know, variety of stories told, most of them are told from a straight white male perspective. And, and like full disclosure, uh, while a huge dork, I am totally a straight white male. And so I, I have limited capacity to sort of speak to the lived gay experience or even the lived Jewish experience or the trans experience. But what I can say, let alone the female experience, what I can say is those people are all a very rich, vibrant and critical part of my life. And I try very, very hard to watch what they sort of, what they need as a community at this point is we're kind of having these greater culture wars. And so often what they're asking for is just for the fucking right to exist and be recognized for exactly what they are on their own terms. People will tell you their boundaries. All you have to do is listen and not fucking argue with them about it. And part of the power of storytelling when you tell stories inclusively is that you have the opportunity to see people living with healthy boundaries or at least fighting for them. And I feel like this game did a great job with that. I feel like they did their homework. It wasn't, it wasn't, I don't know, cliche, generic... None of it was ham-fisted or... No. Look, man, when, when Ellie and Dina first kiss, uh, which you don't really see till later on towards the end of the game, the actual kiss that occurs at the dance early in the game, but that is one of the sweetest, most dorky... It's two best friends who have just been giving each other shit with feelings growing in the background for years, and finally one of them is just drunk enough, just in the right mood and ready to make a move. And one of them is absolutely stunned and unsure of what to do about this, but very clearly happy. And if you can't watch that sequence and just go, here's two young kids who are falling in love with one another and kind of coming to terms with that and really just be protective over them and want good things for them. I would argue that you need therapy. Yeah, because it is, it was very, it's very sweet and it was, it was meant to be. And, and um... can I ask you a question? I don't know. Can you? Scale of one to ten. One being like absolute trash. And ten being life altering. How would you rate our kiss from last night? Why are we still talking about this? You said it was a mistake. Did I say that? What are you doing? I asked you to rate our kiss. I don't know. I give it a six. A six? Wow. Like a solid six. Okay. There are a lot of people around. Yeah, but six. Oh. What? I mean, now I really want to know how you'd rate it. I don't think you do. You're infuriating. Have you met you? You make me want to go back outside into that blizzard. Don't want to stopping you. This better be better than a six. Okay, so now, okay, we forgot to mention, long story short, uh, when Joel is getting tortured, Ellie busts in at the last second to kind of effectively save him, and she is uh, not able to. That's and that's a whole that's a whole thing. But she wants to. She, she she definitely manages to do a little bit of damage. Almost gets herself killed in the process. But they ultimately, after a quick squabble, the more humane part of the WLF Seattle Washington group decides that she gets to live, but she has to watch Joel receive a fatal blow and fun fact another thing that was cut from the game is that for those who've been wondering does joel know when he's looking at ellie and he opens his eyes for the last time his just totally shattered face on the floor and he sees her does he know that's ellie 
No, he doesn't. He thinks, he thinks it's his real daughter. And that's his last thought is that, you know, there's Sarah and then Abby drops the killing blow. And, and we find, you know, Ellie waking up being shaken by Dina. Um, now that they've arrived on the scene and, um, she, you know, obviously is in no fit state. She's been pretty horribly beaten up. And then we fast forward to a few days later and, um, her and Tommy have a conversation. Nothing's happening. They, Tommy's wife is telling Tommy that Jackson can't afford to lose, you know, a response because it would leave them undefended. And so Ellie, Tommy have this very heated, uh, but respectful and quiet argument. They're both clearly just shattered and tired and, you know, um, and the decision is made that with 24 hours, Tommy thinks he can get her to come around and he'll figure something out and they'll go off together and seek this revenge. Um, and the next day Joel's buried and before she knows it, you know, Tommy's already gone and she's gone to Joel's house to collect a few things she needs before her and Dina are going to sneak out of Jackson against Tommy's wife's wishes against his wishes. And she collects the broken watch that Joel's daughter gave to him. And she collects his handgun. And while she's there, there are various things you can visit and pick up memories that they shared together, things that fill in the intervening four years, uh, which you'll be able to go through and play later in little cutscenes as you go through the game. And she remembers these moments. But to me, the thing that I think was by far the most powerful was when she walks into Joel's closet and goes through his jackets and pulls the one he last wore close to her face and just inhales it and puts her forehead against it and sits in that moment. Uh, and that is such a thing when you go on the non-toxic Last of Us subreddit when the game first came out. What I thought was really amazing was that was almost universally a thing for people who had experienced loss to go into the closets of their loved ones and to pull their clothes tight against their face and smell is just incredibly powerful as a memory trigger, as an emotional trigger, as a way to process that loss. And, and so she goes downstairs, of course, Maria, who is smarter than probably anyone else in the entire game series is waiting for them. And she lets them know that Tommy has already taken a horse and left. And while she was going to stop them and she would really like to, that she's really worried her husband's going to get killed. And she asks them to follow him and bring him back safely. Come what may. And that is then where, yeah, so then that's that's kind of then the next major of the four sections is then, uh, yeah, Ellie and Dina, uh, you, get a, you, get a, you get on a horse again. Yay, fucking, I love riding horses in video games. And um, Good horses, dude. I mean, these are maybe not quite Red Dead Redemption 2, which is another really interesting, like, Wild West simulator kind of game, but these are some good horses. We basically, you ride up up to Seattle, then, on this entire three-day section of pure revenge. And um, fueled by the anger of what has happened, you, playing as Ellie up into these segments, um, you feel that anger. And it's, again, in terms of, you know, immersion. Immersion is a big thing for me on games. You know, if I play... If I play Metal Gear Solid Five and I feel like a super sneaky military agent that can go in and you know plant charges and sneak around and knock people out with my arms, then that's immersion. And if if I want to keep doing that, that's good immersion. And this game had great immersion on the like you're like a you're like a hound on a blood trail. You are going deeper and and farther away from your home, out of your comfort zone, into uh, into territory that is not familiar for you uh it's very um apocalypse now-esque it very much reminded me of that of this you know this 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 journey into the heart of darkness of of depths that your character is going to have to go through um if there's anything specific you want to call out let's definitely talk about it but i would say that like this is then the segment of the three-day journey where you are finding Abby's crew and you are pecking them off one by one by one, each one getting more brutal, each one getting more intense, each one getting more real. And that 90210 feeling like we were talking about at the start of the game, you know, the, the, the early adult drama has completely faded away. And now we are into like Ellie going into territories of, of torture. Ellie 
grew up sort of in the care of government systems, going to quarantine zone schools and really with no parents to speak of. She never really knew her mom. She carries her mom's switchblade, and that's about as much as she really knows about her. So we look at what Joel Minter, as fraud as that relationship was, um, because Ellie is ultimately a very principled person and cannot abide a lie. Um, Joel still was the foundational figure in her life, parental figure in her life, and the only template she had for who to be when things get as dark as they can get. And so she has to effectively, across the course of these three days, become Joel and become emotionally distant and willing to torture and willing to go to any lengths to exact that revenge because it's what Joel would have done for her. I think she actually comes out and says to Tommy very early on before they, they embark. And she really is framing. She has no concept for what revenge should be, only to know that Joel would have done anything for her in that situation. So she must make herself willing to do anything for him, which is unfortunately uh, a very, very toxic mindset. Joel was, you know, when he did the things that she has only heard about when he committed these atrocities before they met, he was a very different person. Uh, you know, an alcoholic wreck of a man whose heart had been absolutely shattered by the loss of his daughter. And so, you know, this is not a thing that, you know, as fucked up as, as you know, Ellie might be, she is a fairly optimistic, sweet, jokey 17-year-old girl, apocalypse aside. Again, at the beginning, it's just like, it's like a, it's a buddy movie. Hey, me and my friend, uh, you know, slowly becoming a relationship uh, partner, we're going to, we're going to just ride off in the north on this horse. We're going to have a great old time. We're going to get, we're just going to meet Abby in a field and kill her and then we're going to come home. It's done. It's easy, right? Well, it has, it starts off feeling like it's going to have one of those sort of uh, stand by me kind of moments and, and there are sweet moments there and, and there are really tense moments there I, I think it it has one of the things we can't you know be guilty of doing in straight white males let's go ahead and include that Dina is actually a bisexual character her prior partner is um, you know Korean American chap I think um, and one of Ellie's best friends and certainly part of their sort of social network in Jackson and comes into the story later uh, because he is a loyal loyal motherfucker uh, who's Sort of life catchphrase, if he had to have like a, a tramp stamp, it would just say, my friend's problems are my problems. <laughs> um, and they had just broken up when Ellie and Dina were sort of exploring their sort of more romantic side of their friendship. And it turns out that Dina is pregnant. And so by about the start of day two, she's got morning sickness in earnest and is really not able to join in this revenge adventure. And so what starts off as this sort of very darker than black, you know, stand by me style revenge story turns into something much more perilous because there really is this question of does Ellie respond to her sense of being a caregiver and, and a partner and choosing this life despite being totally scared of what that pregnancy could mean and feeling, although this is never said, I think it's very clear that she's worried that this will lose her, her chance with Dina and that Dina will go back to her former partner. Um, and, and then, you know, finishing the job they set out to do, you know, by the time she figures out that Dina's pregnant, they've killed at least, well, two of the original assailants are dead and someone else has already gotten up here and started working on them. So they are definitely not alone. And that's a very critical point. Um, so she finds herself at this inflection point by day two where she now is a caregiver and yet still has to, while making sure Dina's okay finish this job. And one of the stresses I felt in playing the game that I really wasn't prepared for was that there really isn't a right answer there. I mean, I think the right answer is obviously pack up, we're done, we're going home, Dina's pregnant. But if this were my brother, the, the closest analog I would have to a Joel in my life and someone had, and I found out Jamie was pregnant and she, had, she and I had gone off on a murder spree uh, to go get revenge. I don't know what I'd do. I mean, I love my wife a whole lot, like more than just about anybody, but it's my fucking brother. Yeah, and this is where that, like, it's 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 that classic example of, like, the what would you game. And it's, it's really good storytelling because, again, you know, yeah, if you're out and, and, and the person that you're studying a relationship with is pregnant, she obviously needs to go back. She needs medical treatment. She needs to care it's for this baby. a war zone being hunted. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's where, again, they stick true to the character of Ellie. Ellie is saying, no, we, we stay on this tank and we charge forward. Um, 
a great example of of that in like storytelling is um, I remember um, I was I was acting as a uh, dungeon master for a game of D and D. And long story short, there was a family imprisoned in a jail cell. It was like a mom and her two daughters, and you could tell they had been there for quite some time. Life was miserable, so the party's like, "Hey, let's help," because that's what the heroes of the story do. So they grab the, the, the mom and the two daughters and they're trying to figure out a way out of this horrible situation and a monster shows up that can talk to them telepathically. And the monster says, if you give me the family, I will tell you a huge secret about the wizard that you're currently in search for. Uh, but if you don't hand me over the family, then you're going to have a fight on your hands. And um, of course, you know they take the fight on their hands, but it's a good question of like the system of morality of again, what would you do in these moments? And the game is chucked full of them. And I loved every single one of them because it's just like, again, if, if your girlfriend's pregnant, you should probably go back. But again, that will of revenge was so strong that it escalates that again, puts you in the immersive shoes and lets you continue driving this car as Ellie into the story further. And it was awesome. Um, there was a lot of things. So there's this, this there was... The three-day period, that's that's uh, very important. Three days to get Ellie into the situation up until, like you said, up into Seattle. Searching for uh, Abby, just always kind of like, it always seems like she's like, you know, like a half-day ride behind her. And, um, and again, everything is getting darker and darker and darker. And um, they do a lot of flashbacks in the storytelling as well, which I did, I did like... I feel like there was maybe one too many, but they were all really good, so it's kind of hard. The problem is, is, is they're all really amazing, and when you think of them as being a way to abstract the time you wanted to spend with Joel, they're picking moments that are, the right way to say it, I think, is emotionally nutritive or substantial, so that you can have that sense of loss enhanced while also having a sense of spending time with your favorite person, you know? And, and I think what it did, and, and I'm having going through and playing it for the fifth time right now, I just finished one of the sequences that takes place on her birthday where they, he takes her to a completely deserted zoo, uh, not zoo, but museum, and they have a dinosaur exhibit. And one of the great things about Ellie is Ellie is not particularly gender norm with anything. She loves space. She loves dinosaurs. She thinks shit is wicked and rad and cool and is sort of just a kid. And and so, of course, she's just psyched about dinosaurs and makes some really good jabs about Joel also being a dinosaur because he's old. And and then you get to the space sequence. And, and buried in that sequence where they're visiting the space part of the museum and there's one of the actual Apollo lunar modules um, is, I think, the single best moment of the entire game, which makes it, in my opinion, the best moment of video game history ever. I, I, I'm glad you brought it up because I was, I was just about to get to it as well and I loved it and I love like, I, I love when people get the ability to like recreate a museum. Like imagine being able to work on that as a game designer. Oh wow. Like, that, yeah, I was playing it last night and I was just like, the, every bit of this is so lovingly modeled that somebody is like, yeah, they're using reference photographs, I'm sure, but they're also putting their soul into this because it is just the coolest thing you could possibly get to be a part of is to design this moment for these two people. And it was, it, oh yeah, it's just, and it's beautiful and it's memorable. And that's something too about this game is um, because they have the ability to go, you know, to, to volume 10 and their storytelling in terms of its intensity and the risk factor that they take it generates some of the most memorable moments in gaming that will stay with me for a long time. Joel's death being one of them. This scene that we're talking about where Joel and Ellie, when she's a little bit younger, go to this, yeah, abandoned museum and it's her birthday and they sit in the the Apollo, I don't know, spaceship names, the rocket or whatever. And it's, it's the lunar landing module. Thank and you. I, I can't remember which one it's from, but they, they go and they sit in this thing and they have this incredibly... He gets her what has got to be in the apocalypse, the single for a kid that's like nerdy and into space, the single coolest thing, which is the recording of an actual NASA launch mission from that era that she can listen to on her headphones when she's in the lunar, you know, landing module. Yeah, um, with, the, with the space helmet on because nobody's there to tell her not to put it on. Yeah. yeah, like just, you know, breaking all of the rules because it's the apocalypse and who gives a shit. And, and as a person who remembers going to, you know, like to DC with my dad and going to visit, you know, the museum and seeing all this stuff as a small kid. 
oh my God, there's nothing better, man. I think my brain was producing every chemical it knows how to produce in that moment. And it's one of those experiences like I remember knowing more about space at seven or eight than I, I'd have to spend hours studying the internet to get back that knowledge. But I'm so, uh, so totally galvanized by that. And to, to, to find a place in the middle of this world-ending apocalypse, this incredibly dark age in sort of human history that the game's pretense is, to make light at such that such a level with so much forethought through such a simple gesture, that to me is truly where their relationship is seen maybe the only time at its very best. After you. Watch your head. <laughs> what the heck? Oh. <laughs> okay. Wow. Wow. As you look at all these buttons. Oh, it's so badass. <laughs> Man. Could you imagine just... <laughs> Happy birthday, kiddo. What is this? This is a thing that took a mighty effort to find. storytelling and how to come up with ideas, I thought it was really creative because when you're focused on a game that's like zombies and shotguns and bow and arrows and survivors and knives, you know, it's easy to wedge a story built out of all of those elements and then somebody, I don't know who it was. I yeah, well, like some million dollar, you know, code monkey maybe, or maybe it was like the, the mail guy or something over at Naughty Dog was like, hey, you know, it'd be really good. Yeah, I got an idea. Let's like space, doesn't she? <laughs> what if we go to a um, museum and somebody was like... I mean, maybe it was Neil Druckmann, but it was probably a, a room full of people who, while they were crafting this really hardcore Rambo First Blood revenge violence fantasy, never forgot, the team never forgot that the real drama lives in the nuance and it lives at the small scale and in the moments. There's this old saying, the music is the space between the notes. This game is a absolutely perfect abstraction or abjuration of that in video game telling, storytelling. It was really well done. It reminds me of um, uh, Metal Gear Solid 3, oh, another great game. I guess I'm on a Metal Gear Solid kick tonight. Uh, the ladder scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a, you play Metal Gear Solid 3, you're uh, like a soldier in a jungle scenario. It's a whole long story, and... You're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting, you're going through all this hardship, and then there's this fucking part of the game where you just have to climb up a ladder while music plays. It's a really good song, and it's like two minutes. You just climb up a ladder, and I like every time I get there, dude, I love it. Because again, it's just like it gives you a minute to just sit down, think about what happened, think about like how can you play the game better, what can you do differently, and it's like I, moments yep. like that in in storytelling are amazing because it's like somebody had the idea to be like, hey, why don't we have our character climb up a ladder? Why don't we have our characters visit a museum? Out of the entire stratosphere of, again, everything else, which is zombie survival. And that's really cool. And for that, I, I love it. Yeah, that was one of my favorite I scenes. That, that fog of war is also influenced very much by the amount of money that's involved in video games. We touched on this a little bit. So video games is an industry... You know, books and television and film combined are dwarfed by video games. And 
it's the amount of pressure for performance. And we're seeing this now, you know, a lot of the AAA studios are having these uh, massive issues with, you know, what are, what's called crunch, where they just wear their employees down to a nub, you know, 100 hours a week in some cases, you know, the last six months of development of these multi-year, in this case, a seven-year development cycle. And so somewhere in there to have the salience of thought to slow down and to utilize our capacity for how we, we can pre-game how another person will feel about a ostensibly fairly bizarre decision we might make here or there, that is powerful storytelling. Powerful storytelling is not just the words you use or the images. It's preconceiving of the journey you want to take the reader on or the player on or the viewer on and finding completely fresh ways to get there, especially leveraging hitherto for new technology. And I think I think that like and we talked about this a little bit where they've they've done a really good job and kind of at setting the bar of really trying to say like look at what you can do, you know, like I'm gonna be in the percent honest, I couldn't tell you one story element from a Call of Duty game. I'm not shitting on those games, I'm just being honest. Like I think someone named Wash gets killed and somebody's sad about it. I can't remember. Yeah, either. there's a dude named Soap somewhere. Yes, yeah, Soap. McTavish. And that's where like again, it's it's like if you're gonna be investing millions of dollars in these games, like these are things that do have to be considered. I think the, the 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 level and the elevation of where we're at, especially in 2021, like I kind of expect more out of games in a lot of yeah. ways, especially a lot of modern games. A lot of them feel the same. You know, we've played 12 Assassin's Creed games now. I don't even know. Oh I'm God. making that number up. I don't even know. It's, 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 it's fucking too many. That's what I know, you know. Uh, played, you know, 100 Call of Duty games. We've played Battlefields now, and it's just like... Stop selling us the same product. Elevate elevate your game creation process. And I feel like The Last of Us 2 really fought tooth and nail to like push that boundary as far as humanly possible. And so and I played this right on the heels of Santa Monica Studios coming out with a game called God of War, which was previously a big dumb action RPG where you play, you know, a erstwhile god of war beating up the gods of Olympus and generally being a badass and sleeping with hoes. <laughs> and Santa Monica Studios completely turned that on its head and created this very visceral, very quiet, meditative story about fatherhood out of it. And I was really impressed, and I thought, you know, that is such a complete reimagining, and, and it was a fantastic game. No one can take anything away from Santa Monica Studios. They did good work. And then, like, a couple months later, The Last of Us 2 came out, I think. And I remember... It took me like six months to remember that God of War existed at all, period, because it was such a monumental leap over what was already a high watermark. And so, you know, outside of enthusing about these games, I think the thing that we're trying to translate is that there isn't just a three memorable main characters. There's an entire supporting casting. And we touched on voice actors, but, you know, you've got some really talented people in there, some of which are from... You know, you would have seen in Westworld, uh, you know, uh, some of which you would have seen in, um, oh, what is the name of the show? Oh, in some of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, and, and people who are able to produce a performance with very, very little spoken dialogue in some cases that tells you exactly who they are and, and what kind of opposition they are to each other. Um, and I think one of the things that the game does really well is creating new allies in the void of lost allies so okay so we okay so we're ellie we're we're mowing down wlf and members we're, and abby's friends going solo you run into um your your girlfriend's baby daddy um who has come because his friend's problems are his problems much to his dismay later, because he gets shot in the face. Yeah, he gets shot um, in the face. We've also got Tommy. Tommy's now got bad. Tommy. Tommy's running amok over these motherfuckers, just sniping people. The band is back. Yeah, the band's back in town. The band is all back together. And through, you know, through some carnage you'll actually come across, uh, because you, you actually end up getting to see the other side up close and personal, Tommy has been really just pouring on the poison on these motherfuckers. And so you all end up reconvening in this theater in downtown Seattle, at which point in a moment where the decision has been made that because Dina's pregnant, because everyone has gotten this far and is still alive, they're all going to pack up 
and hightail it back to Jackson. Yeah, it's time to go. And I also, I really quick, I, I can tell that the director is like a huge fan of film, and I love that. Then he the the headquarters that they're 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 hunkering down and camping in is a movie theater. I I, I love that. You can just that's just like him being like, I love movies. Of course, they're going to sleep in a movie theater. But um, so yeah, they're like chilling. Uh, they're ready to go, and yeah, and 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 they were not, unable to find Abby out of all of this. So the frustration is through the roof, and Ellie, in one shape, form, or another, uh, I think she's looking for Tommy, and she comes into a room, and Abby has him at gunpoint. She's grabbed him, gunpoint. A fight ensues. Um, Dina's ex-boyfriend, I already forgot his name because I'm terrible with names. Yeah, he takes takes one to the face. Um, so he's dead. He's out. Jesse. Jesse, thank you. Yep. I'm just terrible with names. It's not because he's not memorable. I'm terrible with names. Um, nope. and, um, uh, so he's gone. Dina's in bad shape and, and here's Abby and, and Ellie and Abby are now face to face and we do something that I, I, I know was as impactful to you as it was to me was we then shift and we go back three days, exactly like we did with Ellie. We go back three days. So, so we have with Abby uh, a, a pause there. Mm-hmm. Abby is accompanied by a random shaved head child with a bow. Proceeds to shoot uh, Jesse in the face uh, unceremoniously. And also shoot Tommy in the face unceremoniously. And then is getting ready to put the spurs to Ellie when we shift. So you are left with a... What? No, absolutely not. What the fuck? I mean, and in playing this, I am like cold sweating. I am so fucked up about it. And then you are Abby and you are waking up in your bunker on Seattle day one. Day one, similar to, again, the three-day process of how Ellie got here. And this is one of many parallels that we will find between Ellie and Abby. in the air, I shoot this one too. Don't you do it, Ellie. Get out of here. Stand up, now. Don't you fucking dare. Shut the fuck up. Fuck. All right, stop, stop. Toss your weapon. Toss your weapon. Fuck. No, no. I know why you killed Joel. He did what he did to save me. There is no cure because of me. I am the one that you want. Just let him go. You killed my friends. We let you both live. And you wasted it. So anyway, we rewind time three days ago. Now we're playing as Abby, and that was really cool. And that's again what I was talking about earlier, where it was I think it would have been more impactful if we could have just had it happen there, but whatever. We're here now, and it's like now it all makes sense. And I thought that was really cool. I mean, I have never and we we t- we spoke about this, but it was like I've never I've never played a video game where I have to play as the bad guy. I've seen film where we see and understand, you know, the antagonist, aka the villain. Uh, yeah. of stories but never in a video game to my knowledge has that ever happened yeah you know so then we follow abby for the next three days on her including s- flashbacks including flashbacks to go back to her father and understanding him and understanding then that when you you know when you killed that surgeon at the end of the first game one of those two surgeons was her father and it's like now we play as that man's daughter and so- um, her father, Jerry Anderson, was sort of one of the titular elders or leaders of the Fireflies, this resistance group that had devoted all of its resources since the government had just kind of basically circled wagons and become very uh, fascistic uh, and authoritarian and had stopped working on any sort of cure. They were just going to kind of hold down these quadrants like Boston, where the whole series starts. And uh, let the rest of the world go to shit. And the Fireflies were were wanting to sort of beat back this this virus. And Jerry Anderson was one of the last sort of functionally effective neurosurgeons who was around. And, you know, obviously one of the big things that happens when you have a giant viral outbreak of zombies is the ground zero is very most often whatever local hospital there is. And so 
we can assume that Jerry Anderson might be the last American neurosurgeon for all intents and purposes. Exactly. And it's it's then it it really puts that weight of the ending of the last game into your hands to understand that again these were people, but you understand Joel, but you understand hopefully you understand Abby's perspective as you go through this that her tale of revenge, which you have just spent, you know, quote unquote three days with with Ellie that's what she had as well and that is how that's where she was at at the start of the game and so there's these parallels between abby and ellie and i i that's like oh man i, I ate that shit up I, I i love it because it's just like sometimes our enemy is sometimes people that are very much like us and that is hard for all people myself included to understand and so for the game to be able to show you this and to like talk about it is pretty dope so so there's flashbacks and there's a lot of like really cool nuance that again shows that these two people under circumstances would probably like I, I feel like they would probably be like best friends maybe not best friends but like really good friends under different circumstances this is the thing this is something that I only recently started even considering is that under different auspices these two women who are both uh, just incredible survivors, uh, you know, in Abby's case is deeply well-read and is a very considered person and obviously a very highly intelligent person who has owned her body into an absolute weapon. Um, you know, through her experiences has been really galvanized. And then you have Ellie who is uh, perhaps a slipperier fighter and certainly a smaller overall human being is an equally deadly, but incredibly considered more internal, more empathetically aware person. Um, Abby shows like no ability to really emotionally get along with others, and I think that would have actually suited Ellie just fine. <laughs> so I think if we put it in like in D and D stats, like yeah, Ellie would be like you know a plus three on Dex, and Abby would be like a plus three on strength. Yeah, so. Ellie's a straight up like you know bow rogue, and Abby is a <laughs> barbarian uh, yeah. in the strictest of terms, yeah. or maybe like a classic sword and board fighter, but. Who's just, you know, found a club she really likes. Um, and, and I think, like, watching... One of the things that's starkest is the difference in playstyle. We got a taste of that with Joel and Ellie in the first game, where Joel is heavier, more physical. The way the camera moves around, the blows he delivers has more force behind it, whereas Ellie is more snake-like and tends to kind of carve little pieces out of things and is more sort of liquid in her movements. And when you get into playing as Abby, one of the things I really love is that, again, you get this, you get to play a little bit of Joel again. She's yes, yeah, probably 5'9", I'd call her 165-ish, and just all plate muscle. I mean, she clearly moves heavy iron. She's a piece of farm equipment. She can pull a cheese cart any day. So, you know, she's just, she's built for war. And it feels like it. And that is a really wonderful thing to get to play as a female character who has spent time really honing her, her abilities. It, she's so kinetic. And the, in the ways that she's heavy, she's heavy with this just very linear, deadly intent. It's a hell of a lot of fun to play as Abby. And in fact, probably more fun, in my opinion, than playing as Ellie. Yes. And in terms of like a quote-unquote video game experience, yes, I would agree. Because you get, I think, a little bit more in terms of options of how you want to play. And you feel like surviving is a little bit easier as Abby. Um, um, flash forward really quickly into the story. When Then when you go back to Ellie and you have to go to, I think, California, I actually found myself dying a lot because I was so used to playing as Abby. So go back to Ellie was kind of funny. Um, I had to kind of reset my brain a little bit. But anyway, um, so then, yeah, we're in these three days of, again, then Abby's perspective. And I find there's, like, a lot of parallels. Like, uh, like one thing is, like... Um, Abby has issues of like commitment and, and love and relationships. Something Ellie also very much has. Um, they're part of, of a tribe and a, um, a, a community that they're just trying to serve their purpose to make said community as good as humanly possible. You know, moral justifications to get there that are very similar also. Um, there's that tendency in any authoritarian group to create an outsider and sort of heap your problems on the shoulders of the outsider because it's a very little emotional cost to you to do so. And we, we obviously see this played out through history many, many times, but people do it in high school, you know? <laughs> so 
so it's no surprise when you know all bets are off and one side has guns that perhaps the cult-like seraphites who live on Vashon Island just across the water sort of become a target of derision for their encroachment into the WLF territory. Yes, and then so then in this three day story through Abbey, we then yeah find out this like um, this this rival gang, this rival territory, this rival tribe community. Um, they call them the Scars, but that's intended to be like a slur. Um, you can see these escalations between the two ramping, and they do some really cool stuff with the WLF through Abby's eyes where, like, it turns very much into a military state very quickly. Security is ramping. Weapons and training are going through the roof, and there's more people. There's that scene where you return back to camp as Abby, and Abby even says, like, I don't know any of these people. And there's a war brewing very clearly, you know, at that point. Yeah, there's... They're at a fire base and there's, you know, hundreds of active duty troops who are just waiting on orders who don't know what's going on. Exactly. And and that I liked. It was just like that that perfect calm before the storm where you can see something is coming. And then you also know in your head where Abby is headed because we know we are currently in a flashback. And that was like, again, like, like this really good roller coaster of kind of like ups and downs and um, and. And so I know I'm skipping over a ton here, but we meet um, we meet Lev. I loved Lev. I thought Lev was awesome. We meet Lev, and um, so Abby, you know, you know, is basically being told by so the leader of the WLF is a guy named Isaac Dixon, who's a, an old Marine veteran who, when the world came to its ends, uh, and you know, the government tried to exercise the same sort of border control and absolute, you know, authoritarian control. Um, the WLF was a community sort of resistance group. And as resistance fighters, he's the last of the original sort of veteran leaders of that Washington Liberation Front. And so he sort of exerts a complete control over the WLF. And he basically has told Abby that uh, her ex-boyfriend and best friend Owen uh, has gone missing and um, that she's not supposed to do anything about it because he's apparently gone missing after... Um, icing one of the, his fellow soldiers and uh, making a run for it. So he's turned tail. And she, uh, you know, talks to her best, her other best friend, Manny, and decides that, uh, you know, her loyalty to her fellow sort of Firefly survivors sort of supersedes those orders and goes off on her. And his last known location was closer to sort of the Vashon Islands territory. Um, and in hunting for him, she ends up, uh, coming across two wounded scars, uh, or two, two scars who are being compromised, being actually, uh, uh, we would assume, tortured to death by other scars. Uh, and she is able to intercede, and they are able to intercede on her behalf, sort of all in the same moment, and they sort of save each other. And in that moment, then they are set upon by the infected, and they have to kind of get out alive together. So we meet Lev and Yara, and Lev and Yara are... Uh, Again, brilliantly played by two amazing Asian-American voice actors. Um, and we assume there's a large Korean population in this sort of Seattle Pacific Northwest area, um, although there certainly are other extant communities as well. Um, and they have been living on Bashan Island, sort of uh, like all the rest of the Seraphites, you know, eschewing all modern technology and living off the land and sort of forming their own religion based around their founder, Um and who they speak about in hushed tones, and they're sort of mortal enemies. You know, uh, Abby is Isaac's number one scar killer. It's who she is. And so when her back's against the wall with these two other people, and her friends are dying all around her, and she doesn't really recognize Isaac or his motivations anymore, they find themselves in a situation where Yara is horribly wounded with a hammer by her own Seraphites, who are basically who basically broke her arm with a hammer, uh, creating compartment syndrome. Um. And they don't align initially. Abby gets them to where they're safe, repaying their kindness in kind, and moves on to the next beat. But the next day after she finds Owen hiding out in this aquarium on the coastline, she goes back because she can't live with herself. And she decides that she has to do something to kind of even the odds, to balance the scales. So she brings them back to uh, the aquarium uh, because... Owen, her former partner's new partner, happens to be the sort of group doctor. And and this sets off, I think, the best mission of any video game ever, which is they don't have the tools they need to operate on a compartment syndrome case. 
So they have to send her to Seattle Central Hospital, which is a absolute cesspool of infected um, and is actually ground zero for Seattle's infection. And what this means is that for the first time, you've seen sort of different kinds of infected, depending on the age of how long this zombie has been infected. It may be pretty much sort of like a person or it may have its head split open with fungus pouring out and be blind and hunt by sonar effectively. Or it might even be some big overridden with fungus giant brute hulk that can snap your head clean off. But what you've never seen before is what happens when a whole bunch of them are allowed to grow in a tight space together. And in the plague times, when rats were, you know, sort of drowned uh, by the thousands, occasionally you would find rats that their tails had become twisted together. And these were known as rat kings. Name for this boss that you end up fighting, which is really a number. I've never finished the count, but I think it's it's eight or nine different infected all grown together as this giant animated Hulk is the Rat King. Yeah, it, this amalgamation of just... Oh, it's so gross. Putrid grossness is just, yeah, been sploshed together into one creature. To like one feet above, like they bypass the Uncanny Valley thing. The facial animations for the characters are great. Uh, world looks incredible, but man, they, they really focused on being as gross as possible with this Rat King. It is hard to look at there was um there was one thing i noticed starting the when i started the game you, you know you go to new game and it right there gives you like your difficulty options and then there was the one option for the survival mode which is one death and and you're done the whole game is done you gotta start all over again and when i was fighting that monster as the, the the rat king i didn't know that was its name um i was thinking about that like man if i was playing that right now like I'd be a million percent done at this point. Like that was a uh, that was a pretty good boss fight in terms of uh, again gamifying all of this. I really enjoyed that section. And yes, the descent into to get to there, it's just getting grosser and more bizarre. And there's like bodies that are effectively like growing out of the wall because it's where they died and the fungus is now taking over. And again, it's that theme, that idea of like okay. WLF members are hunting scars on the surface and uh, Ellie's getting revenge on Abby and there's fighting and there's, you know, wars about to break out and underneath all of that is just this most terrifying, disgusting, horrendous thing just secretly growing and not caring nor concerned about anything that's going on in the human world. And I love that idea that, again, that it's like put down your petty squabbles and realize the real threat sometimes is something that's right under your nose. Get ready to celebrate. So you're able to retrieve the trauma kit that you need from the hospital after this incredibly horrifying... And let me go ahead and say, like, probably one of the only times I've been scared playing a video game. Because I, I, I play it with the lights off, very loud, and the noises this thing makes. Woo! Anyways, yeah, so... Yeah, that's, that whole segment was very well done, and... Um... So you get your trauma kit, you head back, and... Uh, they're able to remove Yara's arm, uh, which puts her at a disadvantage since she's mostly a, a hunter. And um, and Lev decides that he's got to go save their mom because they're going to go run away together. And we haven't really delved into why they were, you know, being treated as abominations by the other sort of religious zealots in the Seraphite group yet. And that doesn't become clear, but Lev sort of intimates in an overheard argument in the aquarium that... You know, their mother would not approve, certainly would not approve of Lev's choices. And you've kind of got the impression that Lev might not be a little boy, but it's really not clear. And they don't dwell on it too terribly much. But Lev's sort of name, chosen name, is Lev. That is not, however, Lev's known name. And as you go off hunting with Lev, um, it becomes clear and clear that Lev has decided Lev doesn't want to be some 
village elder's wife and instead wants to live as a man and be a hunter just like his sister Yara. And I find that to have been one of the most sort of, you know, we talk about these things like, okay, it's so courageous that they did this. It really is. And, and, and it's, it's courageous from the standpoint of you run the risk when you're dealing with um, sort of emergent communities. And these are communities that have always been here, but they're emergent through the greater society. When you're dealing with billion dollar franchises of taking heat if you do things the way they need to be done, which is with respect and sensitivity and honesty and, you know, don't downplay the uglier features of what that would be like as a personal lived experience. So Lev just absolutely the voice actor, the writing, the animation really floored the hell out of me. Um, the partial because Lev is so likable and is just a good kid and is, you know, and in the short time you come to know Lev goes through so much hardship and still is the age roughly that Abby was when Joel met her. That sort of 13, 14 range, which sort of completes the Ouroboros of Abby really being a placeholder for Joel. And Lev, um, this young man that you've sort of saved, becoming a placeholder for Ellie. And what that does is it syncopates the empathetic beat so that through the sensitivity and the openness that the empathetic opening that Abby offers to Lev, uh, because she really has no foundations or family left after this first two days. Lev becomes her family. Yara is killed in a firing in an exchange during a war uh, between the Seraphites and, and the WLF by Yara before she summarily filled full of holes by his soldiers. And they're able to escape. And one of the things that, I thought really made Abby's character finally stick for me in playing it was where Lev is so angry. His sister's just been killed by the Washington liberation front, which Abby is technically a part of and lashes out at her and she grabs him and says, you're my people. And if you don't, again, if you don't feel anything about that, I've played this game four and a half times now. I have goose pimples just saying that line. And it's again, it's the, it's the, it's, it's, it's a game that's about revenge, but that, trying to it's like I, I always feel like it's like revenge is easy acceptance is harder that's yeah. that's kind of my takeaway is that under any other circumstance because again these scars and the wlf they're they're fighting and they're they're killing each other left and right if abby had met you know yara and lev in different circumstances she probably would have murdered both of these people and now Absolutely. she has become not only best friends but similar to joe and ellie a family relationship is blossom and born out of that and it's that's really good storytelling is again it's 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 easier it's easier to hate it's easier to wish death it's easier to say and take those approaches to life instead of sitting here and saying i'm gonna really try to understand an opposition to me and it's also too it goes into again like you know um you're talking about owen's kind of girlfriend in the moment she's the doctor she's helping out yara and they're then giving Abby shit about it. You know, th th this is the enemy, and now you're helping them, even though, again, this doctor has spent her education to heal and help people, she's still mad that she has to then now conduct her procedures on, on you know, the enemy. And and it's just like, if you can heal somebody whose arm's been broken with a hammer, please just do it. You know what I mean? Like, that's empathy, that's humanity. Uh, please, 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 please share that if you can, if you have the, you know, acceptable means to do so, because again, that's the only way humanity is going to get out of this terrible situation with these zombies and this, you know, excessive tribalism that is going on in the world. And, um, and it's just, yeah, really, really good storytelling, uh, that again is trying you, trying you, the viewer to focus on different areas other than point gun at it pull the trigger and kill it and rinse and repeat to the next section of the game. Um, and for that, yeah, I, I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And um, so the panacea, like, I guess back to the, the thrust of the game, the panacea of this game up to this point has been a, a pretty classic retelling of sort of the, the perils of revenge and hate. And at every, every choice that the characters make that sort of puts them on a better path is made completely from a place of love and from a place of inclusion and made without 
very often much fanfare, but simply because, and it's not even often because their their interests are aligned or easy. You know, for Abby and Lev, there's there's nothing easy about that relationship. They're mortal enemies. They've lived the last you know adult years of their lives, um, you know, or at least the last five or six years of their lives in opposition to each other, and we find that they're empathetic. The second their empathetic circles cross, they're able to align not just easily, but to really weld together as a family unit. Um, and and it doesn't feel like an abstraction. It makes absolute sense. If you have any sense of empathy whatsoever, sort of walk through all of this loss and see these people knitting together, and it's the most natural human thing in the entire world to do that. What are they fighting about? Oh, fuck you, Yara. I wouldn't leave you behind. Love doesn't want to leave Seattle. Owen invited them to come to Santa Barbara. That is very Owen. I figured you'd have talked him out of going by now. Actually, I'm going with them. But not if you come. What? He may fall for your little act with these kids. But I don't. There's nothing to fall for. Isaac's top scar killer suddenly had a change of heart. Nothing to do with Owen, right? I haven't always done the right thing. You're a piece of shit, Abby. You always have been. I'm done with you. You want to do right by these kids? Get out of their lives before you screw them over, too. Shoot. 